Welcome guys, welcome, come in, come in. So good to see you. Let me add my welcome as well. For those of you who are new, my name is Chris. I'm on team here as well. So exciting to have you have you with us. Yeah, and um, let me just add as well, uh, next Saturday is gonna be uh, really cool just as we look into the way of the Holy Spirit. For those who've been uh, like confused or those who've been kind of like, I don't know what this is all about, or those of you who just need, uh, we want to uh, press in deeper to the way of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be a great time. Bring your questions, bring your willingness to just come and be a part of that. And we're going to gather and unpack the way of the Holy Spirit together and pray for one another. It's going to be a great time. And yeah, Friday night was great. We had our Ajar quiz. Despite having a significant hand in how the quiz looked, I managed to come second to last, which is a bit humbling and for my own intelligence, but there we go. Guys, if you have a Bible with you, or you have your phones or whatever, I'd love you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. This uh, Matthew chapter 5 can be found between Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 6, um, just to help you out if you're struggling. And just by way of um, closing this up, we'd be, this is concluding our vision and our value series. We were looking at what are our values, and then what are the way that we see our values expressed? around what we do. And uh, we've looked at this idea that we're a rooted people in a, in a generation that is uprooted. We are, we're going to be rooted. We're going to choose to be. In a generation that is all about me, we're going to be about more than me. Um, and in a, a place where we've become risk adverse and we, we want to be safe and, and dull, we're going to be a people of venture or adventure. And then we talked about the ways in which we see these expressed through being... Uh, a people where God uses our talent and we have an opportunity to develop that. Uh, a people uh, that are a temple people connected to God's presence 24-7. Uh, we're a people, last week as we said, of the, of the table, of the unexpected places, the places where we gather. And we're going to finish today, this morning, looking at this idea of transformation. That God is a God of, of transformation. And uh, I don't know about you, I grew up around kind of a weird culture of TV programs that were obsessed with transformation. And the basic premise was it didn't matter what they were looking at, but the, the entirety of this subject could be transformed within a few hours to be perfect. Whether it was your garden, your living room, your wardrobe, your makeup, your hairstyle, clearly I had a lot of work done, and whatever else, it could be all transformed within just a few hours. And the idea was that we wanted this external facing piece to become like we dreamt of it being. We didn't really care what happened in the back end. And I think God is crying out for something a bit different that we're going to dig into today. God cries out for our world to be different, but I, I think we've, we've taken quite a lazy approach to it. Let's fix projects. Let's do things and stuff and let's change structures to see change and some of that's true but Jesus seems focused in on on other areas if I were to ask you this morning what is the most controversial everyday thing that Jesus says I wonder what you'd say and by that it's not like I'm the way the truth and the life that's controversial but it's quite big it's not an everyday statement it's about uh 
matters of life and death and other things, and the eternal. But what would be the most controversial everyday comment that Jesus made? I don't know what you would think or what would come to mind. But in terms of the everyday statements that Jesus says, I think for me, this is the most controversial. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So before we dig into this passage today, I want to give you a little bit of context. Imagine, this is first century uh, in the Near East. You are under military occupation. There are soldiers on the street everywhere you go wreaking havoc on your society. The taxes are upwards of 80%. The economy is in crisis. Food is scarce. The oppressors are land grabbing from your own family. And it feels like every day someone you know is coming into contact with the brutal ways of the regime. The idea of rebellion against the regime is simmering under the surface. Perhaps a friend has joined the Sicarii, which was this splinter group of the zealots who would, who would dress up and, and kill people by slitting their throats. Or, or another who's become a part of the zealots themselves, who take the name from the ancient traditions of violent warriors and took to guerrilla tactics to fight against the Romans. And then in the synagogue, the place of worship, the Old Testament accounts would remind you of the fighting prowess of the people of Israel and that this was God's story and the people are desperate, crying out, remembering the ancient promises that a Messiah would come. And so into that context, on a hillside, where a few thousand people gather, and Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet, only your own people. What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord God, this is your word. This is you speaking to us. And as you reveal your heart for us, I pray that we would be transformed, that we would become more and more like your people. Lord, I pray that our hearts wouldn't be calloused, but they would be soft to what you have to say. Let us be transformed into your image, we pray. Amen. So today, as we look at transformation, I think it's one of the most controversial statements of Jesus. And I think perhaps the reason many of us don't find it controversial is because it's too easy to ignore. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, let's be just really clear from the start. There are no textual gymnastics going on here. Jesus is not saying, so enemy kind of means those who you may or may not have had a minor disagreement with many years ago, but have largely forgotten about. And nor is it saying, this is the enemy who heinously supports a different football team to you. When he says enemy, he means enemy. Those who hate you, or those who you hate. 
who you cannot stand the opinions of and their conduct and even the clothes they wear. And I think when we hear this today, I don't know about you, as I looked at this, my mind was transported to conflict and pain we see all around the world, on our own borders, fighting in northern Kenya, in Ukraine, in Israel, in Gaza. And so the questions of this feel pertinent, but they also drip down into our, into our everyday, into the people we're around. When we hear love your neighbor and hate your enemy, we know that Jesus speaks of this. This is Jesus um, quoting the Old Testament. Uh, he's saying, this is an Old Testament thing to love your neighbor. This is the greatest commandment to love your neighbor is in there. And we know that stuff. But when he says, you've heard it said, uh, hate your enemy, he's not quoting scripture there. This is something that being culturally assimilated into Jewish thinking without any sort of scriptural backing. And Jesus here, when he says, love your neighbor, he's quoting Leviticus 19, and he's calling on a much richer tradition to, to love the people around you. It's much deeper than that. He's actually drawing on this chapter as essentially, how do you learn to get along with people who are difficult to get along with? So it begs the question, why does our place with people matter? Why does this matter? Well, to Jesus, it's, it's really interesting that it, it begins to change the world around us. So when Jesus says love, he's not saying a hippie version of love. He's not saying, you know, we've got that kind of new age idea of love, which is um, be tolerant, be nice to people, don't call anyone out on anything, let them do it. And it's not this kind of fuzzy Hollywood love either. This love is agape love. It's a love of the will to will another person's good ahead of your own. Scott McKnight puts it like this, which I think is brilliant. Love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purposes. When we talk about transformation, it can be easy to go structural really quickly and miss the need for people but the way of Jesus is shaped by transforming the inner of someone so that the behavior changes and then the world around us changes. But more than that, the way we look at Jesus' teaching, it's not about changing the behaviors of others. It's about changing the behaviors of ourselves. You know, Jesus clearly suggests that the world as it is, is not all it's meant to be. But he believes that this is the way that transformation will come. And let me give you, it's a spoiler alert, but this is a really annoying way of transformation coming. He brings the wrong people to the team a lot of the time. Jesus is forever bringing the wrong people in. He hasn't read the company policy on hiring. He isn't as urgent as we are. He doesn't seem career-minded or driven in the same way. But the standard he lifts people to is exceptional. When we read uh, these verses like in, uh, in 48, it says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And we dismiss them. This is Jesus getting carried away. This is spiritual hyperbole. This isn't actually Jesus just trying to jeez up a bit harder. 
Jesus thinks something is happening here that is really important. In fact, as we read the verses before it, so that we may be the children of God. And we may reflect our Heavenly Father in His perfection. They're both telling us what it us what we're meant to be like. And the most annoying thing is it doesn't happen in the big and the explosive. It happens in the most insignificant, the seemingly small, the really hard and the annoying ways. So here are the things I think we can, as we look to be a people of transformation, get our heads around. Firstly this, we need to drop the idea of the myth of neutrality. The aim is not to become a humanly sanitized version of Jesus. So we're not meant to look at Jesus and go, he was amazing, this is what I can humanly achieve. That misses the entire point. We're not called to be good. We're called to be like Jesus. And we're not called to simply stop things being bad, but being part of helping things be good. Jesus is really clear on this idea of neutrality. If you love those who love you and you greet those who greet you, Jesus rails against this. He says, don't even the tax collectors do this. And bear in mind, at the time, the tax collectors were banished from temple worship. They were officially counted alongside murderers. And the rabbis thought it lawfully justifiable to get out, to lie, to get out of paying taxes. And says, you are doing the same as these people is what Jesus is saying. I've got to be honest, I have a dog who's as mad as a box of frogs. But even she manages to love those who love her. We are called to a standard above these things that frankly doesn't make sense to the world. Tom Holland, not the actor, the other one, the one, the historian, reflected this on the pandemic, reflected this about the church during the pandemic. He said, the church chose to go along with the narrative of everyone else. It chose to go along with the narrative of, wash your hands, cover your mouth, don't touch people. And it was so neutral, it was what everyone else was doing, despite the fact that in the scriptures we hold, we have one of the most compelling narratives for times of pain and trouble. He said this, the church wasn't drawing on its rich and long tradition of t- to talk of suffering and pain and the hope that can emanate in these places. And rather than being a light in the midst of the biggest collective human dark hour for several generations, we chose to err into neutrality and offer what every other sane person was offering. What a slam against the church that in a moment where we could have been a real beacon of, of hope, amidst an incredible uh, global issue, the church said, have you washed your hands? When we could have spoken of Job, and we could have spoken of the cross of Jesus, on the hope that comes from suffering. You see, our world will not be changed by being exactly the same as everyone else. We've got to realize we're not meant to be like the world, but just a little bit nicer. We're called to be radically different. Secondly, this, the transformation we seek is not a human thing, it's a Jesus thing. What Jesus is suggesting here is not possible without him. If it is, as nice as it might be, it's human secularism. The transformation that Jesus seeks, which is, we read throughout this, this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, is for his kingdom to come. A world that's lifted up 
where the broken and the marginalized are lifted up, where the sick are healed, where the widow and the orphan are comforted, and where we love our enemies. In case any of you are wondering, this is not going to happen by our hopeful thinking and good intentions. It will happen by Jesus, in Jesus, and on his schedule. One of the criticisms of the Bible, indeed Christianity as a whole, is that it doesn't care about transformation. Something I hear a lot. And one of the issues that I've heard is, why doesn't the Bible sort of, um, why does the Bible seem to enforce or condone slavery? Or the poor treatment of women, for instance. Those are some of the things I hear. Now often when, when people do this, they miss some of the context for sure and the understanding of the text. And I think the Bible doesn't condone these things. But for sure, the Bible doesn't come out against slavery and say, hey, stand up against this, it's bad. We don't read that in the Bible. In Ephesians, we read in this example this, slaves, obey your earthly masters and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So what's going on here? Well, to Jesus and indeed the writers of the entire New Testament, simply asking people to act outwardly in a different way wasn't going to transform the world around them. Just by turning to people and telling them they were wrong or kicking off about these things wouldn't change things and certainly not in the long run. What was needed was not a change in action but a change in heart. And it would take hundreds of years to overthrow slavery in the Roman world but when it happened, it happened more fully than they could have ever imagined. And more fully than if they'd fought physically. What they chose to fight with was the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus working in and through a whole society, leading such lives that would point towards a savior. Thirdly, this transformation begins closer to home than we ever want it to. When Jesus was speaking, this wasn't a removed reality. This was people they had to interact with every day. This was people on the commute, people in their spaces, some of them presumably that they were related to, the tax collectors, perhaps, the Jewish traitors, people they were related to. Transformation begins way closer to home than we ever want it to. Many of you all know some of the Benedictine vows that they take uh, before entering the monastery, some of vows of, of poverty, or of chastity. One of them, a less known one, but I love, is the vow of stability. It says this, we vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things will be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. I wonder what our world would look like if we began to adopt that. I wonder what it would look like if we began to give up our own things for the sake of others, for the formative purposes of others. And we seek transformation, but it begins at home. Oswald Smith says this, I love it. He says, the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. 
And we're so often trying to, to just shine lights out in those spaces and forgetting that it starts here. If we want to see transformation, we don't have to look very far for the spheres in which that is to take place. In the car park on the way out, in our inbox, on the school pickup, in the office, are places where transformation can begin. Next is this, transformation with more than today in mind. The way Jesus envisages transformation forces us to think really differently about life. We're so often drawn towards results in a moment. And when we read the words like, pray for those who persecute you, I don't know about you, but I want to add, well, yes, but we also want to sort them out. We want to give them correct doctrine and practices to go with it. And we want to make sure that they behave properly. And Jesus said, no, I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I was drawn to this this week um, on a week where we took a day off to plant trees. Anyone? Some guilty laughter in the house. That's okay. This is, no, this is a non-judgment space. But I got sent this in a newsletter from someone who lives in the States um, who had no idea. I've always brilliant. John Mark Comer reflects this. In the literary design of the Bible, trees are an icon of the human condition, representing God's invitation to become a flourishing community of life that bears fruit for the healing of the world. It is no surprise that scientists are also discovering the innumerable parallels between trees and people, including slow developmental patterns and the need to live in interdependent communities of mutual support. If people are like trees, the future of church communities may look more like forestry than running a business or a startup nonprofit. In a time where people are conditioned to think only about the present and to live like arsonists and burn things down, we have an opportunity to think generationally and live like arborists to build things up. This is what author Andy Crouch calls the posterity gospel, the slow formative work of building multi-generational flourishing communities that offer life to the world in this passage as we read it's throughout the um throughout the new testament particularly the sermon on the mount jesus slows us down he forces us to think in a different way about the world around us and we have the sense here that what we're doing it may not change the world today but we might be planting mighty trees multi-generational things that change great swathes of society as we're forced to think in a different way about transformation. Next is this, transformation matters more about who we are becoming than the wrong actions of others, which is really annoying because I'm so good at focusing in on the wrong actions of others. Throughout the New Testament, the idea of Jesus is that who we're becoming matters. In this episode, how do, we, how do we find that Christians typically respond? Christians hate their enemies largely, and unlike most of the rest of the world, we often feel we have a divine right to do so. We need to hate on these people because they're going against what God wants. So we choose to harbor our own hatred because we think it's justified by God. But we need to pray for those who persecute us. I've got to be honest, I'm struggling to pray for those who I love some days, let alone those who persecute me. 
And have you noticed, this is not those who are indifferent to me or those who snub me, but those who actively go out of their way to bring me down. Those who persecute me. I find it fascinating that this action speaks of what God is really up to. Have you noticed how the way in which the other person responds or whatever happens to them is of no consequence to what we're asked to do? It doesn't say, be nice to those who persecute you or do lovely things to those who persecute you. It says, go and pray. Do something they will never know about, that they'll never be able to see that you've done because Jesus is concerned for what is going on in our hearts. Some of you know my friend, uh, Pete Oko. He was uh, wrongly put in prison, uh, charged with murdering his wife. He was in uh, prison for over 20 years. And about seven to eight years into this, it was clear he was completely innocent. And the judicial system knew he was innocent. But he was kept in prison because of bribery and corruption. He spent 21 years in prison whilst he was there. He set up a charity to help people um, find Jesus. And for people to understand that crime wasn't, wasn't good, wasn't helpful. So from within his own prison cell, he was fighting for young people not to fall into crime. He was finally given a presidential pardon. And when he came out of prison, a few months later, I interviewed him. And I said, so Pete, you've seen the horrors of this system. What is the thing that we most need to change? And he said this, people need Jesus in their hearts. It wasn't that we need to change the judiciary, or we need to change the systems, or we need better conditions, or better access to legal aid, though all of those things are true. He said that people need Jesus. Because ultimately, unless our hearts are changed, nothing really changes. If we want to be a people who keep the Ten Commandments, don't try and follow some of the rules, change our hearts. That's why the first four commandments are about how we relate to God himself. Dallas Willard says this, the aim of spiritual formation is not behavior modification, but the transformation of all those aspects of you and me where behavior comes from. It is circumcision of the heart. We're going um, we're gonna to spend some time with some discussion questions, just reflecting on this. But before we do, I just want us to pray. Because I, I think this is a tough space to be. Lord God, as we sit and reflect on the challenge of your word, I pray that we would allow you to work deeply in our hearts. Lord, that as we look to those who've hurt and damaged us, we recognize that we're not excusing their actions, but we're choosing to follow you. Lord, I pray for those of us who are eaten up daily by the pains of others, uh, keeping a hold of them in a way they shouldn't. I just pray, Lord, you'd release them from that. Lord, I pray you'd give us the bravery to look into our own hearts. 
and to begin to pray for those who need it, to pray for those who hurt us, to break beyond the, the, the myth of just doing the nice things and the neutral things. Why don't we just take a few moments while we've got some time in, in silence and reflect on what God might want to be saying to our heart this morning. Everybody's so nice to see you, so glad you're here.